the murder mystery podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? If you would like to have your own copy, or give a gift, Season 1, The Parisian Contract, is now available as an audiobook. Search M.F. Kelleher on Audible. On the Murder Mystery Podcast, it's The Parisian Contract. Episode 21 Jean-Luc places his arm across the hold-all in the front passenger seat of his car. He is parked in the same place as the last time he met Mercier. He unzips the bag and looks inside. Five million euros of used notes are bundled roughly with elastic bands, all mixed, not neat, the way Mercier said. He winds down the window, lights a cigarette, and blows the smoke out into the Parisian morning. He imagines what he'll say to his daughter when he sees her. Will she be injured? How has she coped with it all? Maybe Sophie will forgive him when he brings the girl home. His older brain regrets his youthful mind. He remembers thinking about the offer to distribute pills twenty years ago, and how it seemed like a dream come true. At twenty-one, he had no life experience, he thinks. No idea, then, that people don't just offer you something for no reason. They must have researched him, and watched him, and decided that he was the gullible one who would jump at the chance for money. They were right. Two enormous cars turn the corner into Rue Leroux and pull up on the opposite side of the road. A sun-glassed driver gets out and opens the passenger door of the second vehicle. Mercier climbs down from his seat to the roadway, brushes himself down with both hands, and waits for the driver to close the car door. The two men walk slowly towards the opening set into the warehouse door and step inside. Another man gets out of the first car and walks over and stands with his back to the doorway. Jean-Luc grabs the hold-all and walks towards the place, and the man on guard opens the door for him. Good to see you, Dubois. I have the money, Mercier, says Jean-Luc. I can see. Use notes, I hope. I need you to keep your side of the deal. You have my word, says Mercier. Is she here with you? In the car? Who? My daughter. Why would your daughter be in my car? Says Mercier. Stop acting, Mercier, says Jean-Luc, the tension evident in his tone. My daughter, Camille. I want you to get her out now so I can see her. I don't know what you're talking about, Dubois. We're here so you can pay me five million. And you to hand her over? Look, Dubois, Mercier raises his voice. Do you have the cash or not? Do you have my daughter? shouts Jean-Luc. I'm here to talk about payment, not your children, says Mercier. I've gone too far to let you do this, Mercier. I'm not prepared to stand here and let you double-cross me. You are not 
prepared, says Mercier slowly. Do I need to ask Robert here to remind you who is in charge? Do you think some small-time pusher can tell me what to do? Can tell me what he is prepared to do? We had a deal. We have a deal, says Messier, calmly. You pay five million, and I forget about your indiscretions as a young man, right? Nothing else. Now just give Robert here the cash. But you said— I said what? We didn't talk about your daughter. If you want another deal, then that's a different matter. What do I need to do to get my daughter, Mercier? Jean-Luc grabs Mercier's arm, and the bodyguard tears his hand away. Whatever else you have got yourself involved with is no concern of mine. Our business here is finished, says Mercier, walking to the door. Keep the cash, but you need to keep supplying me with information whenever I ask for it. Mercier! screams Jean-Luc. The sound echoes through the space around him and returns to his ears, but he is talking to himself. The door bangs shut, and Jean-Luc is alone. He crumples and sobs like a baby in the dirt of the floor. Olivia's laptop rings the sound of an incoming video call. She looks at the caller's name. It's Francine. Livy, hi. Francine, says Olivia. Wanted to get the latest on your deliberations. I need a clear plan by tomorrow of the latest. Now, can you update me? On Alpha? Of course, yes, says Francine. What else? Olivia starts her planned approach. What about David Malneath? she says. There is silence for a second. Malneath? Yes, you wanted me to talk to him. And? He's disappeared, says Olivia. But I think you know that. Why would I know that? You tell me, Francine. You've lost me. Aren't you in touch with Glenthrow? says Olivia. You need to be, Livy, because that's your job. What about the police, Francine? What about them? Have you been in touch with them? About Max, you mean? says Francine. No, Richard is covering that while he's in Paris. And no other police contact? I don't know what you think I've been doing, Olivia, says Francine. I told Richard that I'm very concerned about your whole approach. It's very simple. Let me explain so even you can understand. Montgomery's bid was blown out of the water by a counter from Glenthrow, who must have known about Montgomery's move. The only way they could have known is through insider trading. That is how it appears if you only look at a few cursory facts, says Olivia. But it's more involved than that. Such as? Max was killed over something he found out about David Malneath, says Olivia. We don't know that. I suspect Max got himself involved with some unsavoury people, and he was in over his head. He did, and those people were Glenthrow and their backers. 
You have proof? Not that is shareable. So this is just your wild ideas, then, says Francine. Let me ask you about another lead I have come across, says Olivia. What? Conigan Industries. Mean anything to you? What is this to do with Alpha, Livy? You do know them, then. I don't see. Could you just answer me? A pause. Olivia can feel her push is working. I am aware of Conigan, of course, but I don't see what that has to do with Alpha. I have found a connection, says Olivia. There is no connection. I have evidence. What evidence? I can't tell you, she says. What do you mean you can't tell me? You work for me. Francine has remained calm until now, but her voice gives away her frustration. Potentially it's a criminal case, so I can only report findings to the police, says Olivia, bluntly. I don't know what you've been researching, Livy, and what it has to do with the alphabet, says Francine, building in power. I don't like your attitude here. You should be following my guidance as you provide me with a legal service to support client contracts. Not go off on some wild goose chase finding criminals in German companies that have nothing to do with your job. We'll have to let the authorities make that judgment, Francine, says Olivia. Olivia, find a solution to Alpha by this time tomorrow or there will be consequences. I don't respond to threats, Francine. I will talk to Richard and get his guidance. I am warning you. Got to go, Francine. Been lovely chatting, says Olivia, and hits the end call button. Guy walks across to Marianne's desk. Hey, beautiful. Hello, Guy, she says flatly. Is he around? Out of the office, I'm afraid, she says. Seeing more important people than you, she smiles sweetly at him. When's he back? He's out all day. Tomorrow? says Guy. I don't really know. You and his diary, don't you? He has cleared his diary for two days, says Marianne. When did he do that? Earlier on. He sent me an email. I spoke to him with Richard Carlyle, though, says Guy. She holds both palms upwards and widens her eyes. He breathes out. Anyway, what have you been doing with your life? Plenty. Such as? She pauses, considering the risk of saying what crosses her mind. How well do you know Jean-Luc? She asks. As well as you, I guess. He's not happy, she says. He's got a lot on. Is he coping, do you think? Says Marianne. With the stress? Guy considers the point, looking up to the ceiling for inspiration. I think he's bored, to be honest. He's been in this job four years. His upward progress before this was stratospheric. Now he's become just another CEO. Do you think he could break the law? Do you think he has? He says quizzically. What do you think? I think he has it in him. Yes, says Guy. He's still ambitious, despite his career slowing down. That'll just make him more frustrated. Anyway, what prompted that question? I just see a man getting closer to breaking point, closer to his world falling apart, she says. 
and he can't stop it. That bad? We'd better all start looking for jobs, then, says Guy. He smiles at her, turns away, and walks back to his office. Guy dials Jean-Luc's number and waits for the line to ring, but it goes to voicemail. Jean-Luc, Guy, he says. I had a conversation with Richard on his credit lines for Alpha. He's sorted out the bond structure, but there's a condition that David Malneath is informed. I have concerns. I can't see how that will work. Malneath will block it all, and to make that a showstopper condition just seems to drag the risk profile higher for no reason. Richard is not keen to go back and renegotiate, so I think we all need a conversation on it. It would be good today if you can, or tomorrow if today is difficult. Let me know. Bye. Constance waits in the taxi on the open road to the west of Paris, where the city runs out and nature takes over. Amber shocks of wheat stretch into the distance, and a single dirt track cuts its way through the fields. The air is still, and the dust from her journey remains floating across the crops. She gets out and leans against the vehicle. She is too hot in her city suit and removes her jacket. She walks slowly across to the opposite side of the roadway to stand in the shade. She stops and listens, but there is no sound that she can determine. She thinks about her mother and whether the woman is proud of her only daughter. She needs to visit her soon. When Constance was a teenager, her mother had been an aggressive and dispassionate creature, but Constance doesn't regret it. It has made her the woman she is today. Twenty years ago, she had been miserable and could never understand why her parents didn't let her do what all her friends did. Now, she knows it was for the best. It gave her an edge over other girls in school, and over everyone else at law school. She is proud of her consequential reputation as slightly heartless, particularly as it's not the way she sees herself at all. There is one conversation that she has never forgotten with her mother, even though it is decades ago now. She can remember the exact words, and it replays in her head. Never forget you're not in competition with others, her mother had said. I thought you have always said I can achieve great things, Constance had replied. You misunderstand, her mother had said. You are in competition, but only with yourself. That guarantees improvement. Each time you do anything, do it a tiny bit better than you did it last time. Then your target is always just ahead of you, but achievable. Ignore what the others are doing. Better still, don't even find out who your competitors are. What they do, and the way they do it, is irrelevant. Do it your way. That's all that matters. Constance thinks about whether she will have a daughter of her own. She had not wanted a child before she met Jean-Luc. She has never known the experience of a man loving her as much as he does. But she doesn't feel the same, and is not sure if she can ever love like that. On the horizon, birds rise above the ground. 
she squints to see any detail that fails. At some stage, the engine noise of an approaching car reaches her ears. Faint at first, then growing, growling against the hardened soil. The black Renault seems to be accelerating. It's almost upon her. A crescendo of dust surrounds it completely, as it suddenly comes to a standstill beside her. The back door opens. She looks up expectantly. Madame Machon, good to see you again. Monsieur Messier, she smiles. How are you? Richard cues for a vacant self-service till and wonders how it came to this. He wonders how his fabulous career has brought him to be buying whiskey in a cheap Parisian supermarket in the middle of the day. He wonders whether it was always his destiny to be here. Experience seems to count for less these days than when he started out. He isn't a showy man. He has always relied on just getting on with the job, not complaining, just being reliable. He thinks back through the hundreds of people he has worked with, some he liked, many he has no wish to meet again. The fleeting eras when he had been valued by each of them were all over far too quickly. He reaches the front of the queue. He pays for the bottle and a plastic bag to hide his shame. He walks back to his hotel, through the reception and up to his floor. Another hotel, he thinks. He could be anywhere. It doesn't matter where he is. He swipes the card through the lock and pushes the door. He takes a water glass from the stand on the sideboard and places it centrally on the table provided in his room for discussions and occasional food. He pulls out the bottle from the bag, twists the cap and pours a large measure. Then he goes to the bathroom and fishes out his sleeping tablets. He pops out the pills and they fall onto the polished wood. Two of them break in the process and they flake white powder onto the brown surface. His mind goes over the email from the regulator. He hates that his reaction to the whole thing is so emotional. He has spent his life working things out precisely calculating the odds of risk and the chance of success. He has become rich by doing that for other people, using his natural reliability to give others peace of mind. He should be able to work out the details for this situation too. He should be able to write down exactly what is needed. Almost automatically, his mind starts to list the required actions. Reply to the email call his contacts, get advice on unwanted takeover strategies, find investors, bolster his asset sheet, and make Carlyle's unassailable, just like he has advised others to do for all these years. When you're faced with a threat based on your current business, transform the organisation into something different through restructure, merger, or acquisition. Companies aren't fixed, they're dynamic, ever-shifting, continually adapting. Without the ability to change, they are worthless. 
He desperately wants to see himself in that same way right now. His sinews strain to make it seem different. He has to find a ladder, but he knows he is slipping, inexorably, down a snake. He puts his head in his hands, looking at the tablets, then picks one up and pushes it into his mouth and swigs back the golden liquid. How have you been, Constance? says Messier. Busy. Glad to hear it. My contacts are keeping you earning your keep, are they? Not all my work is through your contacts, Claude, she says, giving him a sidelong glance. He nods in recognition. Shall we walk? he suggests, and they turn off the road onto a path that runs into the field. I hear you've been excellent for Georges Larique, he says. That's because I'm good, Claude. He smiles. I may need more of your help later this year, he says. I'm expanding my operations in Spain, and there's some legal work needed. Okay. And what about our current case? Seems to be progressing the way we want to, don't you agree? She says, turning to him. It needs to be drawn to a conclusion. I don't like unresolved problems. It's very close now, she says. There's one small sticking point that a contact is going to deal with tonight. What's that? Let me deal with the details, Claude, she says. That's what you pay me for. I'm relying on you, Constance, says Messier. You won't have to worry about it by this time tomorrow, Claude, she says, and smiles at him.